Welcome to After Awakening. Here we discuss enlightenment and the greater spiritual reality with meditation masters and spiritual teachers. Hello everyone. Welcome to a long-awaited episode. I'm here with Don Barry, the Dhammakaya teacher. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. I've spent a lot of time at our temple in Thailand, and there are always various meditation practitioners that are mentioned by some of the more erudite and developed meditation teachers. Two names always come up when it comes to the West and America, and that is Robert Mawson, the late Robert Mawson, and Don Berry. So Don had encountered meditation uh, over 25 years ago at this point, correct? Yes. And you had pretty much gotten the okay from the abbot to start teaching meditation, or was there a longer process you had to go through? A longer process. I would say I first was at the temple in 1998, so I wasn't certified to teach until 2000. Long track record, (laughs) many years of being a certified teacher and has a master's degree in Buddhist studies. So she's quite familiar with the Pali and the commentaries and how Dhammakaya fits into all of that. That's very refreshing to me. It's very rare to find someone who, uh, aside from a couple of monks that I can name offhand, that is able to communicate those ideas in English. So we're happy to have you, Don. So did you have spiritual inclination from a young age? I would say it... I would say so, but in terms of the Eastern, that was different. I I was introduced to that when I went to college. I had some friends. I had a roommate who was interested in Buddhism and meditation, and I just saw the wonderful qualities that she had. So that had an influence on me. I saw that. There was something unique about her, and she was my roommate was meditating every day, and she had traveled to Chiang Mai, Thailand, and had spent four months there. So she had talked about Thailand, and then I had the chance to pursue an internship over there. So that's why I decided to go abroad. And from the internship, how did that lead to the temple? Yeah, so actually the meditation was helping me. I I did an internship at the Human Development Center. It was in the slums of Bangkok. I was working with street kids. I was working in an AIDS hospice. I was working in... Uh, a preschool for poor children and and learning social work. So I wanted to really have a tool for me so I could show up in the right way to help people that are in distress and just in a variety of circumstances. So it was just a pursuit for me to have a tool that will help me do my job better and help me confront things that might scare me, challenges, uncertain situations. And it just helped me to handle situations much better. But when I was at my internship, I was introduced to the World Fellowship of Buddhists on Sukhumvit. And I used to go there once a month. They had teachings in English. And that's where I encountered their library, where I found out about Wat Pradhamagai. So they had a book, Meditation Centers of Thailand, and they said, if you want to do a retreat, you have to write a letter. You should write a letter to the abbot and the vice abbot requesting to go there and meditate on a retreat. And that's what I did. I wrote to Wat Pradhamagai. They were right outside of Bangkok. I wrote to a number of centers because I didn't know. And I, I got a call back from the temple and it was Dr. Siri Porn. She was my Kalyana Mitra and she invited me. And that was the start of it. So for the people who are not familiar with Pali, a Kalyana Mitra means spiritual friend, like friend on the path. That's right. The one that set me up, set up everything and helped me to get on my retreat. So you go on this retreat and did you have a profound meditation experience on that retreat or did it take time? So I originally only asked to stay for a month and it was in the meditation village and I was placed with 150 other Thai university students and it was summertime, it was summer break and which means it was really hot too. <laughs> oh, geez, but- unbearably hot. It was hot, but it was an amazing experience. It was such a warm and supportive experience. I was so happy to be with other university students 
my age and we were just pursuing this together and it was wonderful and they were so supportive and it was really nurturing to me and helpful on my meditation path. And so after a month, the monks had asked us to keep a journal and 30 days in, I got to see how the experience was progressing just in my written journal. And I'm like, I can't walk away now. I have to continue. I now see how this is developing. <laughs> and I think it took the first 24 to 48 hours of the retreat that felt so long. That felt like the rest of the time of the retreat <laughs> to settle in those first couple days and just get into a schedule. But once you get into that experience, you're documenting it, you're talking to the monks. It's, it's I was just on my way. So, to speak. so I'm not sure if you're aware, but for a person's first meditation retreat to be a 30 day, that's pretty intense. How many hours a day was this program? How many hours were, was everyone sitting? It was eight to 10 hours a day. It was an intensive program. It was a wonderful program. The students that were there, they were volunteers at the temple. And it was just wonderful that we were all there together to experience this. And after a month, I ended up staying for close to three months. I stayed right until my visa expired. It was just right at the end of the program. I just was taking it all in and I just didn't want to leave actually. And at what point, did you actually start to shift into becoming a teacher? Did that take years to happen? So after I finished that retreat, I was heading back to the United States and Longpur Tata said, so what are you going to be doing once you get back there? And I said, I'm, I'm going to be doing social work. I just graduated and I'll be looking for a social work job. And he said that you may consider uh, teaching meditation because that would be teaching your clients a tool that they can use to help themselves. So, and he put this idea in my mind that I should consider pairing the two. And he was so interesting. He brought out this huge map of the United States and he said, where are you going? Because <laughs> I had come from Montana, but I have family in New York State. I was heading back to New York State and I explained I was going back to upstate New York where my family is. And he told me that I should visit Azusa when I get back to the United States and I should stay connected and I should meditate and keep a journal but I should visit Azusa to consider teaching meditation to children is what he said. And I can go there and talk to them about that. And so I did, I flew out to Azusa probably about three months after I got back. And when I was out there, they told me to talk to Robert Mawson because then I was mentioning the idea of pairing meditation with my social work career. And they said, well, we want to put you in touch with Robert Moss. And so they gave me his phone number on a little sheet of paper. They're like, here, when you get back to New York, you have to call him. And it was just fate that that happened. I remember I stuck the sticky note in my calendar and I walked away and it actually fell down to the ground. And the woman came up, she goes, ma'am, here, you, you drop this. You must take this and you must call Robert Mawson. <laughs> and I thought, Wow. Wow, that's yeah, synchronistic. It was because I was thinking, well, am I just going to call somebody I don't know? I, I didn't know what to say or I wasn't sure, but I just thought that was a sign. Uh, Robert Mawson was one of the, yeah, probably most well-known Western teachers in, our, in the Dhammakaya tradition. And he unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but you taught alongside Bob Mawson, you guys were a team. What was it like teaching with him? It was wonderful. We went back to Thailand together before I was certified to teach. We flew there. He flew there with me and we went to go see the abbot and we meditated together with him. And then I became certified to teach. And then he, the abbot paired us together. And he sent us back to the United States. We were the Dhammakaya Meditation Institute or DMI. Nowadays it's called MMI, mm. but it, it was DMI originally. And Bob and I were the initial instructors and we um, had a team 
of lovely Thai people from the temple who joined us. And we went all over the United States. We were in Azusa, Chicago, New York City, and Vermont, Washington, DC, Virginia. And it was just the start. <laughs> we went on this meditation tour. It's fantastic. Yeah, we traveled everywhere. <laughs> to get into more intricacies about the technique and what it actually is, it's fantastic to be talking to you because with the amount of experience you have and training you've personally done with the abbot of the temple and the vice abbot, the things that the answers that you give are beyond thus I heard that we actually, you've had some experience with these things. What do we mean by the word Dhammakaya? Yeah, so Dhammakaya is the, our goal. We're trying to attain Dhammakaya, which is the highest purified state that one can attain. And so that's the inner body of enlightenment. It's the, it is something that we all have. And so we have to uncover it through our meditation and through a process of experiencing different inner bodies or different uh, levels of our consciousness, which is purified aspects of ourself onto Dhammakaya, which is the ultimate. One of the things that we spoke about was the relationship between namittas and the purification of mind that happens in meditation at the center of the body. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so that's um, in the elementary stage of Dhammakai because there's an elementary and intermediate and advanced stage of the meditation. So we begin by imagining a bright, shiny crystal ball or a shiny, a bright object such as a sun or a full moon. But when the mind becomes very still and clear, Longpu Wapaknam, we know his story that a bright, shiny Namitta arose in his meditation, which we learn that's actually our mind. We experience our mind as clear and bright and luminous. And, but there's a journey to get there of stopping and stilling the mind and developing our consciousness, developing our meditation so that we can then see and experience the luminosity of our own mind, which Long Puwat Pagnam taught. That's in the Pali Canon. It's in the commentaries. Can you give us some advice on the difference, the shift between imagining the meditation object, imagining the sphere and actually experiencing the sphere? Yeah, tremendous shift. If you are to think of a moon and you close your eyes, it's not going to look very bright. No, you're not seeing it with the mind's eye until you do, until you get to that point in your meditation. And then you, with your eyes closed, you're seeing it with your mind. And it's an amazing brilliant color, just something indescribable, something that is so beautiful, more beautiful than what we see here around us with our own eyes. So we're seeing with the mind. This particular point in meditation, is this considered access concentration, for example? Like your attention is, your mindfulness is pretty stable at this point. Oh, absolutely. Yes, this, yes. I would say at that level, yes, it takes some time to develop that. And people can experience flashing lights, but the goal is to stabilize that sphere that arises. And so that is going to take some, I would say, retreat time to uh, experience that sphere and then what to do with that to develop and cultivate your own mind in meditation. Yeah, this is such an important point that I want to dive deeper into. There's actually a book on the back of my shelf about jhanas. And one of the chapters is called From First Sit to First Jhana. And in the description, it says, this is usually where most meditators spend the majority of their time. That's right. Why is that? <laughs> because it takes, because we have been involved in our minds since we were born. <laughs> The conditioning of our mind, our ordinary state of mind is thinking, and we are fused with our thoughts and our emotions. And that is what we experience until we learn the tool of meditation. And it's going to take a while, typically, to calm it down to be able to access the mind and to be able to go into these other aspects of our experience, of our consciousness. 
and of the meditation. And so 30 days on a retreat, meditating eight or 10 hours a day. I'm surmising that's a more optimal period of time than a weekend to get through this kind of first sit to absorption stage, correct? That is correct. Yes. I would not have been able, I don't think, do that on a weekend retreat. What was offered, what could be offered in that setting. And that's what I'm so grateful for and so happy about the Dhammakai, that they can actually offer that type of setting in a very peaceful, serene, quiet setting where we're all supported. You don't worry about the computer. You're just going to set all the distractions aside and they just tell you everything will be served. The food, you don't have to worry about anything. And it was just the most beautiful, amazing experience to precious to have that time to devote to cultivating and developing meditation. It was brilliant how they do it. And just so life altering and life transforming. Yeah, absolutely. And if you wouldn't mind, if you're willing to share, what was your time with the Abbot and Vice Abbot? Yeah, after I had done the three-month retreat, and then I went back to the United States, I was there for a year and a half working. And I thought about teaching, becoming a teacher because the Vice Abbot had suggested that. So they told me to just teach at my house. I set up a home of good friends and I invite people over. But then eventually I I said that I would consider pursuing becoming a teacher and maybe coming back to Thailand. So the abbot and the vice abbot told me that they wanted the meditators who've been meditating with me for over a year to write about their experience, their meditation experience, and to describe the way I teach. (laughs) And so everybody loved it. They were so nice. They did, they did that. And then it was translated into Thai language. And then based on the results of those descriptions people wrote, I then received a formal invitation by the abbot to return to Thailand for the possibility, no promises, they said, <laughs> for the possibility of seeing if I could become a, a certified meditation teacher. But they said that it takes two aspects. One aspect is your meditation experience, right? They said, you can have a meditation experience at a certain level. We need you to have it at a certain level, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can teach. You also have to demonstrate that you can teach. And they said, we're going to measure that by asking the people who you teach. And they said, we are looking for you being able to bring people to what they said to one level in their meditation experience, which is the luminosity of the mind. They're looking to see, can I teach people how to bring their mind to a standstill so they can experience that inner light and experience their mind is bright. And in your personal way of teaching do you emphasize relaxation a great deal i know bob mawson did at least in some of the audios and recordings i i'd heard of him are, are you the same way or are you more focused on mindfulness or is there a balance between the two we start with relaxation because it, it helps with the posture and it helps people are very stressed out and they're not going to get very far without the relaxation and the sabai feeling. They actually have to shift into what's called the relaxation response in order to get into a meditative state. Because if somebody's been working all day, they need to learn the skills to learn how to relax their body and then relax their state of mind. That's how I was taught. And that's how I still teach it today. In consideration of relaxation, this is one of the challenges that meditators face. How do we get from the stability we have in meditation, the luminosity of the sphere, mindfulness is very stable in meditation? How do we get to that being more prevalent throughout the day? Is it just a matter of sitting more? Is it a matter of accumulating more merits? Is it a product of the mind being more purified? Because we both know there's days where for some reason you're just very present, very mindful, center is very bright, even outside of the meditation session. But how does that become something you never deviate from? Is it just a matter of hours? What's your take on that? 
I think it is because it's much like training to be an athlete. So if I'm going to train to run a marathon, it's not happening tomorrow. I'm not going to be able to do it in two weeks from now. It's going to, I'm going to have to develop the skill. Now that's a physical skill to be able to run a marathon. <laughs> so this is developing the skills of meditation to be able to cultivate a steady and stable state of mindfulness and centeredness that you can have throughout your day. And I would say that's going to take retreat time in addition to a daily meditation practice. That's the key to meditate every day and just to get into the routine of doing that and multiple times a day as well. To go back to the subject of jhanas, because there's people listening that are interested in this. It's a buzzword in the Western Buddhist community. Yeah. What's the relationship between jhana and the center of the body and the more refined bodies that we go through in this meditation practice? Yeah, that's a, a really great question. And it's an important question as well in order to understand this technique. So as we center ourselves, one pointedness at the center of the body, we experience the spheres of light arise. And then the inner bodies can arise as well. And those are depicting the different levels of our consciousness or the different purifications of our, of our mind, basically. And so we go into the inner bodies. And then as we get to the sixth, seventh, and eighth, and ninth inner body, okay, I'm going into it a little bit. Now, these are more developed as you are able to bring your mind to a standstill at the center of your body and at the center of the namitta, the sphere, if it arises for you. That's the key. Then you go into the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth inner body are the jhana bodies. Okay, so the sphere can arise at the center of those inner bodies, and then you can have access to the jhana experience, the form and formless realms. In this technique, it's called the rupa brahma body, and then the next one is the arupa brahma body. Now, this is before the dhammakaya bodies arise. So this is before a person can attain path. And this is written about in the Pali Canon, a person can attain jhana before they attain path. So it's an accomplishment in your meditation that you can attain jhana. It shows that you are dedicated. It's an achievement, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have attained path. And when I say path, stream entry. And so that's on to the next inner bodies that will arise, or if they do arise based on your practice and your merit and a variety of factors, whether that will be something that will come to you in this lifetime. So in Visuddhivacha, written by Lungpu, he talks about how all the bodies below Dhammakaya are subject to the three characteristics, impermanence, selflessness, and suffering. The bodies of enlightenment above the Arupa Brahma body are not subject to those three things, the three characteristics. And this was a very controversial thing for Lokbu to pronounce and to teach. Is there any comment that you can make about what makes attaining Dhammakaya path? Is it the level of, of omniscience that that body has? Is it able to see reality in a very different way or in a, at a deeper level than our physical body is able to? Yeah, as one acquires the inner bodies and progresses, they will acquire the wisdom associated with that inner body. And that also means that there's a level of purification. They've overcome certain hindrances, like very issues. To say the least? Yeah, to say the least, the belief it goes quite deep. It's beyond just the ordinary hindrances that we're dealing with at the lower bodies, at the lower levels. But yeah, onto what it would be like to be a stream enterer, a once returner, a non-returner, and an arahant. One who has overcome the belief in self. They're not clinging to self at these higher levels, and they're not getting angry, and their heart is filled with love and kindness, and they're not struggling with attachment to self. So they gradually, as they progress through these levels, 
can attain that onto arahantship, arahant dhammakaya. And with this technique, it might be the same way, same thing I'm hearing from other teachers that teach samatha jhana practices. They, find, they say that on a retreat, on average, let's say there's 50 people, there's really a handful that will actually have the experience of absorption. I found the same thing in, in our community, <laughs> that there's really only a few people that have uh, tasted the fruit of what we're talking about. And if it really comes down to hours, does it just mean that we need to do more daily practice, more retreat time, and more refinement? If we buckle down and learn to relax more and be more consistent, how much of a difference does that make? Because it, there's all, it also seems that some people just have this in their design. I heard this Bob Mawson didn't really go through much meditation and until he attained Dhammakaya. So what's the, the, the balance between having this natural talent and merit from past lives and being really ardent on a daily basis? It's the key. I, I think we have to think about the Buddha's last words before he passed away. The Buddha told his attendant to strive on with diligence. What the Buddha's dying and Ananda is, you're going to leave us. What are the last parting words that you have for your Sangha? And he said to strive on with diligence. And when I think of myself on that retreat, that is what it took. It takes diligence and patience. It is the mind of the commitment of an athlete has. Rain or shine, you show up to train. Whether your friends come or not, you're there, you're dedicated, you're committed. Whether you feel like it or not, <laughs> you go. That is what it, that is diligence. And that's what I experienced on the retreat. And you just keep going and you will get the results that way. I love that because there are people I know, um, people I've associated with that have been meditating for a very long time 20 years 15 years but they are dissatisfied with their level of spiritual insight and where they are in that area of their life and I always ask have you really done deep retreat time and have you set aside an hour or two every day to meditate because that sounds excessive when you tell when a westerner from our culture hears that but when I overview and when I see the lives of all the great teachers and masters I've known, that has been uniform. They all had a daily practice. They all did intensive retreat. And in many cases, it took several years. It does. And then what happens is there's a shift and you will want to do two hours a day. <laughs> Exactly. You will want to sit for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, and you will want to do that. It won't, you'll just cross over that threshold. And once you do, you're just on your way. And I experienced some of these experiences in my first retreat. And if you had told me that's what I was going to experience, I, I wouldn't have believed it. I wouldn't have thought this was possible, but it, it is. These experiences are accessible. It's really about just knowing what the instructions are, the method, and then finding your way yourself, and then striving on with diligence and having a supportive community, which helps. What's your advice on getting to that point where you want to meditate an hour or two every day? The inner experience is enjoyable enough to really compel you to sit that much. I find a lot of the students I deal with, they're still in the initial phases where good and bad meditation sessions up and down. Consistency is the number one thing. And if that beginner is quite restless and meditation is something very different to them, they can just sit for 10 minutes a day, but then they should build that up. You say 10 minutes one week, add another five minutes, the next week, 15, 20, 25, 
30, after five weeks, after six weeks, 40, you gradually build it up for them, just like you would somebody training to compete athletically. And it works the same in that way. They can just build it up. I would um, suggest retreat time. I would suggest group practice is incredibly helpful and incredibly inspirational for people. When I came back from Thailand, there wasn't any Dhammakaya group in Buffalo, New York. And I sat with the Zen group, the Zen Buffalo group, and I told them I was doing this other technique and I explained it and they said, your technique sounds like it has merit. We welcome you. That's okay. <laughs> and so I, I went there because this group was going to sit for two hours once a week on a Wednesday evening in a house together, in a beautiful house together. And I would go. And that helped my practice. That's a group of experienced meditators if they're sitting two hours straight. Yep. And, yeah, and that, that helps with the energy. Absolutely. Yeah, it made all the difference. And then as far as like journaling and then getting connected with your teaching monks and just tuning in to listen to Dhamma talks. We are so plugged into social media, YouTube. Why not listen to a Dhamma talk as you're getting ready in the morning? It can inspire you in that way and help your practice. It puts your mind on that. Because the second we go to work and we're talking with people and our friends and our coworkers, our mind is mingled with things of the world. That's going to be the rest of the day. And that's the majority of the day. <laughs> so why not mingle our mind with Dhamma when we have the chance to? It could be on a commute. When I was first practicing, even now, if I take a commute somewhere, I'm driving, I'm listening to a Dhamma talk. And finding opportunities to, to contemplate and meditate throughout my day. I know you've done a lot of group retreats, long ones, three months, one month. Mm -hmm. What's your take on solo retreat time? Have you ever done that where you just rented out a place and you've meditated alone for a month or two weeks? Yes, my typical solo retreat is a three-week retreat in Thailand. That's typically what I do once a year. I go on a three-week retreat. I land in Bangkok, and I am in white and taking eight precepts until the day before I go. I utilize that a whole time, and you get to a point in your practice where you want, I want the independent time. I have my method. I have that ability to do that. I just need the space and time and structure to do it. And I love going to Thailand to do it. So and the vice abbot sends me up north to outside of Chiang Mai to do my retreat. And so I go up there. And I, I'm doing a solo retreat when I go. You just finished school, you end up on this meditation retreat, you have some good experiences. And suddenly you're in Buffalo, and there's 10 people meditating around you, like within a year or two. You have students. Did you ever see your life going in this direction as a kid, as a teenager, before any of this? No, not at all. I didn't even see myself as a teacher. <laughs> I was quite shy or quite not thinking that I'm going to be talking to a group of people until I've had this experience and I realized the value of meditation and just the opportunity to share it with others. And then all of that falls away any shyness or any second guessing it because I have confidence. I know what this can do. I know this is one of the most important tools a person can learn in their life. We all need to be meditating. It's very powerful. If we want to experience the power of our mind and the potential of our mind, we all need to be meditating. It makes life that much better. And I'm sure when you talk to different meditators that have been meditating for a while, they'll all say the same thing. Just a variety of benefits. And as far as that group goes, 20 years ago when I was teaching in Buffalo, just recently somebody from that group contacted me and said that I was in your group back then. And could you please tell me the name of that meditation? Because I still do it. And once in a while, I tell my clients how to do it. Now, this person ended up becoming a social worker, too. 
<laughs> we actually have the same job. He's in Buffalo, New York, but it, it was just very interesting to have contact with him recently and for him to tell me about this because I haven't talked to him in many years, actually, because I've left, I had left Buffalo and, and traveled around and have done a lot of different things. So for the solo retreat time before we move on, is that something you recommend or not recommend for people who've been meditating at a more beginner level? It really depends on the person. Hmm. When I wrote to those temples to ask for a retreat, I was invited to Wat Panachat. That's the International Forest Monastery where it was going to be a solo retreat. And I didn't I'm like, no, I need the structure. I'm not, come on, I'm getting up. In a kuti, in the forest, alone, <laughs> with wild animals. I don't think I would, without, I needed the structure and the team and the support and the formal monk coming to teach and the chanting in the morning and in the evening I needed that in order to jumpstart my practice. And I can't imagine, I would have gone there if I didn't have the opportunity to go to Wat Pratamagai. So it was just meant that I was, I landed right where I needed to and was in the right setting. I knew that practicing independently as a beginner was not a good idea. I'm sure I would have meditated probably half the time that I meditated on the retreat at Dhammakaya. And then I would have gotten half of the results. I'm guessing, I, I don't know, I, I, but I think it's a very personal decision. It depends on the person, but I think for beginners, the group structure helps and it helps somebody. You need to have a regular meditation practice, I feel, before you do an independent retreat, because if you're trying to figure that out on a retreat by yourself, that's very challenging. Especially if you're out there in the forest alone. Yeah, now I can go into the forest alone in a kuti. Give me my kuti and the forest and the jungle. I'm fine. I love it. I, I'm all set. But it took a little while to get there. <laughs> Point I wanted to address. How did you know that this was the right path for you? Because I've met people who make a lot of money, who are successful, but behind closed doors, they tell me my life's a mess and I really don't want to be doing this. I just got the ball rolling and I have to keep going. But how did you know that meditation in this tradition, in this method at that time in your life was right for you? This is a great question. Actually, I had been meditating with a different technique before I was introduced to Dhammakaya, and I feel I just plateaued with that technique. It was just focusing on the rising and falling the breath at the center on the abdomen. And it was just working with the breath. And I just feel, felt like I had just reached one level. Now, I didn't have a teacher to explore that with further. But when I went to Dhammakaya on that three-month retreat, it's, I just had a breakthrough. My, my practice accelerated by doing the Dhammakaya method. And it, it just offered everything. And it just brought up my practice in an amazing way. So I had some foundational practice before I went, but this was just, this just took it to another level in a relatively short time. Although when I say short time, that took my diligence and my commitment, which you have to commit to a retreat time, eight to 10 hours a day, which was so worth it, which was an amazing experience. Just indescribable. Like it's the best three months of your life. Just go sign up and do it. <laughs> you know, It's just, if somebody has the opportunity to spend that kind of time or inclination, if you even have a little bit of an inclination to do it, I just felt like a restless university student. I had monkey mind. I went through all of that and learned how to work with my mind and overcame these obstacles and was able to do that on a retreat. So 
It's just so invaluable. Surely with a thousand hours on a meditation cushion, probably the mind is going to stop and just become still. That's a lot of hours. But this is the kind of dedication that I love to illustrate because in our modern culture, we want everything fast. We're so used to instant gratification. And a lot of us can just have totally unrealistic expectations when it comes to this practice and any deep meditation practice. Could you talk about that and how expectations that we have in meditation can really actually harm us? Oh, it's the number one obstacle in meditation. It gets in the way every time, expectations. And so it's best to just understand what the method is, what are the instructions, and to apply it. And I tell the people I teach all the time, never compare yourself to another person. That is a complete trap. It's like a temptation to do that. I think in the West, let me talk to and see what's happening in there experience. But that is just a huge trap. I didn't do that. They didn't have us do that. And it's wonderful. It's just a very personal journey. And you have to take a leap of faith into the meditation method. And I think the initial level that you see is the relaxation and the peace that you get from learning how to relax your body and calm your mind. And that's the start of it. And with that, you gradually start to see some benefits and know that you have a powerful tool that in your, at your disposal. I think it's incredible because once you get past that specific demarcation line where you really enjoy meditating and it's a part, it's just your nature at that point, it just always gets better and better year after year and more refined with time the issue is hanging in the game for long enough to actually get to that point because you've taught so many people i've taught a lot of people and truth is a lot of people quit way too soon whether shopping around trying all the different teachers and all the different techniques what's your advice and and thoughts on that because being westerners a lot of us don't have allegiance to one teacher or one technique or one tradition, but many techniques and traditions say you shouldn't mix up different practices. What's your take on that? Do you take that very seriously or not so much? I understand the situation of people being restless and wanting to either figure it out by reading a book what I love about the middle way meditation is that we have our method of middle way, but within the middle way, there's flexibility for you to calm your body and calm your mind. So there's some flexibility within the middle way, like how somebody's going to encourage their mind might be a little bit different from how somebody else is going to encourage their mind. Do you see what I'm saying? So you can develop some, you can experiment with the tools that it offers and, and figure out what works best for you, like a combination of the mantra or visualizing something or focusing on the breath. The key is being one pointed at the center of the body and bringing the mind to a standstill. So the experience will be universal once somebody develops that skill for doing that. They can choose to just focus one pointedly at the center and do nothing, or they can choose the breath, or they can choose an image to imagine, or they can use the mantra. So you can hear that there's flexibility there for them to choose based on their own temperament and their own leaning toward it, which I think is brilliant and beautiful aspect of the middle way. And one reason why I took to the techniques so much, I really appreciated that we have our method, but they allow you to have some flexibility within that. Because at the end of the day, we have to figure out how to encourage our mind and our body to calm down and be still and one pointed. So I remember as a beginner meditator for myself, I would be, I remember being in Azusa, actually, I'm having a memory now of meditating in Azusa as a beginner. And 10, 15, 20 minutes into it, I start to feel a little restless. Okay, this is 
going on a little long now. And then for myself, I could just think of my favorite place, my relaxing place, the monk had us imagine at the beach or at the park. And I would just go back to that, that place. And there I was imagining myself meditating there, using that imagery until I can center myself and then boom, back into the meditation. Okay, for somebody else, it might be doing some slow breathing. It might be using that mantra, which in you can do a combination of it. Whatever encourages your mind to be centered, you can experiment with that. And I think people have to realize that when they're using those tools, rather than labeling it as people will tell me, well, I can't meditate because my mind wanders. No, that we can meditate because our mind wanders. And that's the actual practice that our mind wanders and we bring it back and we're developing and cultivating concentration and we're developing our meditation, patience and all the meditation factors that we develop, the samatha, the one pointedness, the equanimity, those get developed within the wandering mind. So we don't have to fight with ourselves. It's just, it's what's happening. We need to accept it. And I think journaling is great. Teaching people that they come to the meditation, I tell people to pay attention to that shift because the shift is going to happen 10 minutes into your meditation or 20 minutes, depending on how restless or stressed out the person is they experience the shift to the relaxation response. It's a noticeable shift. They will sleep better at night. They'll be like, I don't know if I'm meditating correctly or not, but boy, I sleep really well. <laughs> so that it's like, it's happening at the cellular level in the body. And when people, they just have to be patient enough. It will happen if they're patient enough they will enter the relaxation response, even if their mind's jumping all over the place, because I've seen it, I've taught it, I've experienced it myself. Can you talk about getting out of the way in meditation, getting out of your own way? I found that the main shift for me was just completely getting out of the way and letting the meditation really be as it is. And I feel that it's, it's important to overcome obstacles and to be flexible at meditation and to deal with the hindrances. But I feel that if you're doing, if you're just doing too much in meditation, it really interrupts the stillness. What's your take on that? That's exactly right. So these methods I was talking about is for us to enter a state of stillness or to be able to enter a state of one pointedness where the next very important instruction is a non-doing that was, that's so important. It's like, okay, now you found your center. Now you can let your mind rest there. Now it's a non-doing. Just rest and nourish yourself in that space of stillness and cultivate silent awareness and stillness and having your mind at a standstill. But the time we have to quote unquote, do something with our mind is when the mind wanders. And this doing is a very gentle doing. It's like a non-doing so gently. And I love the metaphor, the imagery of the leaf. It's like the leaf falling off the tree and just very gently touching the top of the water on the river. That was the imagery that I was taught. And that's wonderful imagery. That's just how gently we're bringing our mind back to touch the center so softly and then developing stillness from there. I have some questions from guests, actually. And if there are any more questions, everyone, please put them in, in the comment section and they'll be fed to me for Don on anything related to meditation, Buddhism, enlightenment, path. Please submit the questions. Since you did a master's in Buddhism, you're familiar with the commentaries and with the Pali scriptures. So I want to ask two questions in, in that regard. What did doing the types of concentration practices in the Vasudhi Magga look like with our technique? It's there because in the Vishuddhi Magga, the one type of kasina, quote unquote, one type of object that you can focus on is a light. 
Okay. We have that as, as one reference to that you can take a light as an object of meditation to focus on and then to enter into the meditative experience. Now, the Vishuddhimaga doesn't have the Dhammakaya laid out like that in, in the commentaries, but it has the initial, as far as I can see it, focusing on a light casina or a light object. And having looked through the, the canon, because you're familiar with this practice, were you able to read or see passages differently than the average person might? Like, oh, that's a reference to Dhammakaya, but if you didn't know about the technique, you wouldn't pick up on that? Did you find that to be the case? Yeah, I see it throughout the, the Pali Canon, and you have to read into it and, and do your own translations, really. One thing you have to realize about the Pali Canon, if we're reading it in English, we're reading some, someone's translation, which is very respectable, and I totally respect anybody's translation of the Pali Canon, but we have to put it in that context. That's why in the, the Buddhist studies, you go back to learn the Pali words yourself and what the root meaning of the Pali words are. So you can work at deriving translations and they're similar. They're similar with other people's translations, but you see how it goes because sometimes these words aren't so neatly <laughs> translated from Pali to English. They mean something. They're these concepts actually is what they are. And then they're really to be understood within the context of experiencing them in your meditation. <laughs> because when I first started meditation, I, I opened up the Visuddhimagga and I skipped the entire section on morality and just went straight to the concentration part and the psychic powers part because that's what every young guy is interested in. Right. But the entire aspect of that training was called concentration. So this whole time, I'm thinking that concentration is what I learned in school, just very focused, pressured attention. And I found that was really not the best translation of the word samadhi. That's right. What does samadhi mean to you? I always define it as it's a mental unification. Samadhi will come about as a result of one pointedness upon an object of meditation, then you enter a state of mental unification. And Long Pu Wapak Nam talked about that unification in his teachings. And that's what you want to experience. And it is an experience of unification in your mind. When you experience that, it's really wonderful. And in accordance with the commentaries, these unifications also entail the factors of absorption happiness, equanimity, correct? Yeah, they bring about the feeling of equanimity, tranquility, yes. Yeah, the, the reason I wanna clarify that, it sounds redundant, is because uh, people who dig a little deeply into Theravada, there's a lot of intersect conflict and downgrading meditation techniques from different schools, from all sides of the debate. That's true. Yeah, I don't think it can just be, I don't think it's a fair interpretation. I understand that there's issues with the Samatha Vipassana and the goal is to develop wisdom and insight and how we're going to get there. The schools will teach their method for doing so. It seems that when I review or look at the lives of different teachers and the different paths, even within Buddhism, it seems like in some cases, we're talking about a different version of enlightenment. Uh, this person's enlightenment seems a bit different than this person's enlightenment. Are we just looking at different layers of the onion? Or are we talking about different paths and different mountains altogether? I love the analogy of the elephant and the five blind men touching different parts of the elephant that are going to be describing if you have a blind man touching the trunk of the elephant he's going to describe it a certain way he's saying look it feels like this and it curves this way but if you have somebody in the back touching the back leg they're like no this this thing here is thick and it's it's going straight down and so we're all talking about the same thing but we're describing different parts of the whole 
And then there's limitations within words. We can't describe. It's indescribable. We, if we could just describe it and grasp it, then that's all we would do. And we wouldn't then meditate, but we can't. It's experiential. So we have to understand, we have to use words to understand the suttas and the teachings and then to strive. The key is for the experience. You can invite people, invite um, your meditators to experience it for themselves. The Buddha taught the concept ehipasiko. It means go see for yourself. Right. I love, I love that word. Final question from one of our viewers, Robin. Is there a book that describes enlightenment step-by-step step and how to actually get there? What are your thoughts on that? A book that describes, I think, uh, yeah, no, because look at the Pali Canon. Is it one book? No. Why do we have a canon? Because we have this mind that it's not going to be a one book, one size fits all to train this mind, to coax this mind, to develop this mind. We have about a hundred books and thousands of suttas to speak to all the different minds and personalities and tendencies that we need to address. Before we end on it, this could be a long answer. But uh, as you said in a conversation that we had, American Dharma, American Buddhism hasn't really been established. We don't really know how that looks yet because Buddhism came here, I think, 1940s at the latest, at least actual monastics. We know Lena Blavatsky brought it earlier, but that wasn't the monastic system. What do you think American Dharma looks like moving forward? And what is Dhammakaya's role and place in this tradition? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I think that it's going to take more time. In my graduate studies, I learned that Buddhism, the Buddha said that Buddhism needs to be in a country for 100 to 150 years before it will have its own identity in that country. Before we have American Buddhism, it needs to take root here for an, some more generations, another generation, before we see an American Buddhism emerging. I think as far as the role of Dhammakaya, this is a beautiful uh, meditation. We just continue to teach it and uh, we can make references to the Pali Canon, the Vishuddhimagga. We can teach people a tool for experiencing it themselves. And I feel that it, it, will, it is a part of the American Buddhist scene. I absolutely think it is as well because the great thing about Westerners is we really live by the proof being in the pudding. If it actually works, we're willing to, to take a leap, to give it a shot, to integrate it. And I think that open-mindedness is very helpful for, for the future of Dhammakaya. Do you have any final thoughts before we end the show today? I just think that if Dhammakaya just continues to offer classes and retreats, they just continue making offerings to the community. That's the way people can come and learn and find out and experience it for themselves. I'll share a story right before I end. My first class was at the Meditation Center of Chicago back in 2000. 20, it was 2013, I was teaching at the Meditation Center in Alexandria, Virginia outside of Washington, DC. A woman shows up in my class. I was in your class in Chicago. Do you remember me? She's like, just moved to Washington, DC. <laughs> and I found this online. I was looking for meditation because I just moved here. So it's a small, it's a small world. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. My point is people get introduced to this meditation technique and if they join a class, they have an experience with it. It is something they, they remember. It stays with them. If they give it a chance to, to get to that experience, to have an experience with it. it. It definitely does. But at least the way that this technique is a lot more so now is there's a big emphasis on sabai and sati and just really driving the relaxation. And that's so useful because when I first started Azusa, I was trying so hard, so hard. And you can no, just do that for years and it goes nowhere. It's true. The relaxation and the sabai is key. What's on your teaching schedule for this year? I know you just did a retreat earlier this month. 
what is your teaching schedule looking like? Do you have any retreats coming up? Do you have a website where people can find you or Facebook? Yeah, actually, I do have a website for my psychotherapy practice. If anybody wants to see that, I'm at the Center for Mindful Living in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And that's where I work and I'm doing telehealth because of the pandemic. But I recently got licensed in New York State. I was offered, I was already offered a job doing telehealth and teaching meditation in New York City with a medical group. So that's something new. I'm going to explore that. Let's see what comes about there. We have some doctors wanting to teach their patients meditation. Can I do that? So that's in the context of my work. However, I do um, teachings outside of my work. I teach at the Meditation Center of Alabama. And with the pandemic and because we're conquered down at home, I'm looking at creating, going back to creating the weekly classes and perhaps writing a manual or some type of guidebook to help um, beginners because it's the same sort of questions. And I feel that if I can make that accessible in an online book or a hard copy book, that would help like some sort of booklet and then in teaching weekly classes. Fantastic. This was an incredible talk and I'm so glad we got to go into deep part, deep aspects of the Tamakai meditation technique and your background and how you got to meet the avid and vice avid. It's just really cool because I've heard so many people talk about you. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story and really giving the listeners a huge amount of advice on meditation as well. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. For updates on future guests and shows, you can sign up to our newsletter. As a thank you, we'll send you a 10-minute video on getting out of duality, which has some very, very useful meditation pointers. So go to ryanjburton.com and click on Get Started. Thanks for tuning in and see you on the next episode.